Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the advice. Carpe diem. Seize the day. The comebacks. Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. Uh-uh. And the technology. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Stuck in the 80s, it's your host Spearsy and Brad in New York. And today we take a stroll down the railroad tracks to rediscover our love for the movie Stand By Me. But what's the worst thing that can happen? Train! We never had any friends later on like the ones we had when we were on Patreon.com. Jesus, does anyone? Okay, gang, time to find that jar full of pennies you buried under the porch and become a supporter of the podcast. Hell, steal that milk money from school. Even a buck a month gets you access to exclusive content, VIP Zoom happy hours, four room temperature bottles of Coke, a half a pack of Winston's, and some antibiotic lotion for those leech sores. Find out more at patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Hey, everyone, to help us out with today's conversation, it's our uh, good friend, Michelle Willits from Wisconsin. How are you doing, Michelle? Very well. Thanks, you guys. Now, from what I understand, you have the ultimate set of Stephen King books. I will say that one entire built-in bookshelf is all Stephen King books, but I curate them. I bring the ones out that I really want people to know that I love mm, and that okay. uh, and they come out into the living room. So they're on display. Ah. The rest of them are out uh, in the built-ins. So yes, yeah, since, I don't know, uh, eighth grade, The Dead Zone was my first Stephen King novel. So Stand By Me is based on the novella by Stephen King called The Body. Mm-hmm. Much more on this later. The book itself was released in 1982. The movie is released in August of 1986, which makes it, ding, yes, 35 years old. So uh, we figured, even though we covered this movie a little bit in episode 606. Ah, can you say that we covered it? We, we mentioned it. We didn't really get that into the weeds on it. Like, well, you know, out in the countryside on the railroad tracks in a leech-filled <laughs> pond weeds. Well, I, I think what's interesting is we, we sat down to do a podcast about movies to watch in a heat wave. And we, we had like four or five movies to talk about. And for some reason, the one we kind of connected with unexpectedly was Stand By Me. To be fair, gentle listener, I've always liked this movie, Steve, until recently. Well, let's just say the scales fell from his eyes when he saw this recently for the first time again. Oh, smacko. Yeah. It's true. So 
So cast your mind back. It's a, it's a, fall day. <laughs> it's a steamy <laughs> August in 1986. Brad and I are second half of our sophomore year, yeah. so, of our freshman year, right? In college. No, in August? No, you're starting your sophomore year. Okay. I was already a sophomore, but. Oh, well, look at you, Mr. Big Learner. <laughs> so here's my point, though. You're at this point, 19, 20 years old. 20 year, 20 year old Spearsonian did not want to watch a movie about 12 year olds. So okay. fair. I went and saw it and, I, and it didn't make much of an impression on me. I had never read Stephen King at that point. And, and so for the 16 years of this podcast, I, yes, I have usually rolled my eyes and, and clucked back and forth every time this movie gets mentioned. And uh, but I took it back. I took it back in episode 606. And to make things right, you know, I'm sorry for burning <laughs> Teddy's ear. You know, oh, oh wow, got, wow, got really dark really fast. Um, but so we're gonna we're gonna give this movie its due today. All right, all right. Mickey's a mouse, Donald's a duck, Pluto's a dog. What's goofy? Everyone happy? I'm happy. Excellent. Okay. Somebody want to sum up the plot for, for the three listeners of Stekinities who have not seen this movie, because I'm pretty sure ooh, it's probably ooh. three. Somebody ooh, sum up the this. plot. I can do this. This I can do. I can't speak to Stephen King's great literary oeuvre because I've only read a few of his things, and I barely contributed to the notes this week. Let's just face it. Uh, but I can do this. Okay. If you haven't been paying any attention for the last 35 years, this is a movie about four 12-year-olds who are about to go back to school. Uh, it's a little gang of, you know, your little friend group in middle school, or they probably called it junior high then. And one of them comes running up to the group and says, hey, do you want to go see a body? He has figured out where this body is of this kid that disappeared months ago, and we can talk about that more in the, weeks ago. We can talk about that more if we want to. But that's the that's the premise for the adventure, and then they set off across country to go and find this body. Michelle, let me ask you this: as someone who's who's read so much of King's work, this seems like such a simple plot. Is this indicative of his work at this time? When I think about the body, which is what it is called in the novella collection of different seasons, it is one of his simpler tales. It's not overwrought with scary things. And that's one reason why I think it's lasted so long is, and why it was adapted so well to film. It's just really a simple story. It's four kids hanging out in their treehouse, and they go on an adventure and they get into some trouble and you watch their friendships, you know, come together and you see just a little bit about how they might come apart as they grow older and you know that childhood innocence thing that 12 years old you don't yeah. have college yet you don't have any of those things behind up uh, yet yeah those, you don't have those, any of those things yet th those four boys stood at the edge of something that they didn't know was coming and they didn't know they were standing there but mm -hmm. that's i think that's what you know you say the innocence of youth that's what makes these four characters really resonate because I think everybody can connect with that except the people who are still children, Steve. Well, yeah, I, and I, I, I think here's where I, I trip up on this movie is I, I think back to, to 12 year old Spearsy and 
there's nothing that these kids are doing that I can remotely relate to, except for maybe drinking soda out of bottles. That's about the, and camping out in backyards. There was no, there was no smoking of cigarettes at that point. There was no, uh, um, incredible overuse of the F-bomb. And there was no sense of adventure on, you know where a dead body is? Well, let's go find it. And, and mm. I, I don't well. think, I don't, I, it seems like to me, and, and I still say this, having read the book and, and watched the movie like three or four times this summer, I, it's a great story. It just seems like it wouldn't happen to 12-year-olds. I brought a comb. What do we need a comb for? Well, if we get on TV, we want to look good, don't we? A lot of thinking, Vern. Thanks. Two for flinching. Well, here's, here's my counter to that. Every one of these boys had an older brother. And I don't know. You didn't have an older sibling, Steve. I did not. Michelle, I don't know about you. I am the oldest. You're the oldest. Okay. So, I, oh, I get to be the authority. This is fantastic. So when you have an older sibling, you get pulled along a little faster, I think. So I admit when the, the scene opens and they're smoking cigarettes, I'm like, really? 12-year-old smoking cigarettes? But their big brothers did. And whether they thought they were jerks or idolized them, kind of wherever they were on the spectrum, that's a, a behavior that they will, oh, I'm, oh, I'll be more grown up if I do that because my big brother does it. So that, uh, it's maybe a bit of a thin premise for all the swearing, but I think that there is some influence that older siblings have on you. I mean, believe it or not, it's my older sister that got me into Devo. <laughs> she cannot to this day believe how far I took it, but... <laughs> I first heard Devo riding in the car with her. Did, did she smoke? No, uh, no, not not really. I mean, not habitually. I think okay. you know a lot of people like in college. I smoked at parties, but yeah. never really, never really oh, yeah. took. Yeah, Michelle, did you did you smoke as a as a as a teenager? Oh no, band people couldn't do that because then you wouldn't have any lungs for you know. Yeah, you don't want breathing. to sit in the back of the section, do you? Come on, no. In college, yeah, we'd do the trunk sitting around the bar, passing around a cigarette or something. But yeah. it wasn't it wasn't a thing in high school. Yeah, <laughs> okay. band kids band kids don't smoke, right, Brad? That's pretty true. Yeah, pretty true. Maybe some of the percussionists. Yeah, bass players. But you know what the drummers are like in any situation. Come on, just load the van already, okay? At least they're not high brass players. <sighs> That's true. They are the worst. If there's something that I relate to here in this story that catches me right off the guard, it's the fact that you have uh, Gordy, um, who I guess I guess he's the the straightest arrow of the bunch. No, well mm-hmm. he's the he's the voice, right? He he's your primary character that you experience the movie through because he's yeah. narrating it, right? But, yeah. but he's but he's also like he's probably the smartest at this point, or at least the most. Um, his path is a little bit more evident he's gonna mm-hmm. he's he's smart enough he knows he's going to college he's you know he may or may not want to be a writer but it seems like he's the one who kind of has his shit together when i was tw- 12 and 13 and i lived in this neighborhood this i don't know but it was a blue collar neighborhood in 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 tampa bay in the in the suburbs I, all my friends were like like the goofballs of this movie like they they were all guys who went on to um, none of them graduated high school. You wow. Know, okay. They they all ended up maybe getting their GEDs. 
they, you know, took over their dad's painting business or lawn mowing business. Um, and my parents, like like Gordy's dad, tried like hell to get me away from these kids, away mm-hmm. from my friends, because mm-hmm. they were they were bad influences. And I didn't okay. I, I didn't see it then, but they well, saw no, you're a kid. How no. would you? Yeah. So, but, but that's, that's if, when I, when I watch it now, that's what I see. I see, oh crap. Yeah. I get this now. Like I didn't you see, see Ace's gang running around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. Where did we all see this for the first time? Michelle, where, do you remember where you saw this? Was it on the theater? Was it on home video? No, I wouldn't be going to many movies in college. I spent my money on beer. So it probably was post-college when I had money for basic cable. I want to say it was on heavy, heavy rotation on TNT or TBS. Um, I watched it an awful lot. What about you, Steve? Do you remember, <clears throat> do you remember where you saw it? So 1986, I had a lot of friends who worked in the, at movie theaters. So I would sneak, I would be able to go see a movie for free most of the time. They, or they'd have a, what did they call it, Brad? Like the employee viewing where they had to check out a real yeah, I mean, you could do, there are different ways you could do it, but when I worked at the movies, you also had the manager kind of honor among thieves thing where a manager at one theater would call the other theater and say, hey, I have a couple employees coming over. Can they come to yes. the you know, seven o'clock screening of whatever? And they'd write you out a pass and you'd go over, right. which was great when I was the manager of the Fox Fullerton crap hole, crap hole theater. I could call, the, call and write myself a pass to go to a movie at a good theater. <laughs> I, the, the for probably other, a decade, I had a stack of movie passes from Fox Theater in my glove box, so I could write out a pass yeah. any place I went. It, it, the trouble was for me, 1986. You know, I was very busy and I had no money, and there were so many other movies like Pretty and Pink, Ferris Bueller that that I connected with more. I I think I may have also seen a part of a screen at the University of Florida. They used to have you could go to the student union, you could watch a movie sure. that, that had just mm-hmm. come out yep. of the theater. You could watch it for a buck, and it, but huh. you had to sit like in a folding chair. Folding chair, yeah. And it was in the was, gym or yeah, like in the student was, union. Somewhere. It was just a yeah, student mis- union. It was miserable. So I, I probably this movie probably gets some unexpected, um, you know, shit from me because of where I saw it. But what about you, Brad? Do you remember? So I here's what I do remember about this. I don't have a specific memory of seeing the movie, but. I do know that I was living in the dorms and I was working at the movie theater right across from school. So I had, again, I had free access to go see it. So it didn't cost me anything. And the movie was, well, let me say the soundtrack was extremely popular in the dorm that year. I don't know why. I don't know what it was that put that up over the top, but it was on for probably the entire month of September and October someplace playing in our dorm. So I will go out on a limb and say I probably went and saw it at the, you know, at the Edwards movie theater across the street with a bunch of people from my dorm. And I'm guessing besides me, everyone enjoyed it right from the start, right? I, I mean, I was sitting in a dark theater with girls near me. How bad could that be? <laughs> Suck my fat one. Whoever told you had a fat one chance? Biggest one in four counties. Let, let's talk about the source material for a minute. The 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 book by Stephen King. Um, where does this stand? Like, at what point does this does this come out? Where is he in his career, Michelle? It would be, I would say, in the first third. So he's already been really successful with Carrie and The Shining. 
And he's really in the center. I think that the 80s are truly the mother load of King's writing. Uh, he, yes, he got started in the late 70s, but the 80s was just, he had more than 100 credits for books, novellas, short stories, movies, anthologies, television adaptations, the whole gamut. He was all over the place. And this was, um, as we said earlier, this is from Different Seasons, which is a 1982 collection of four novellas that represent the four seasons. The Body, from which is sourced source material for Stand By Me, represented the fall from innocence. Mm. And the other, the other three pieces were um, Apt Pupil, which was made into a movie with Anthony Hopkins, I believe, years later, and Rita Hayworth in The Shawshank Redemption. And the fourth novella was called The Breathing Method, and it's the only one that hasn't been adapted into uh, TV or film so far. But with King's stuff, you never know, as it sure. seems to come. I mean, Dark Tower was written in 82, and they did the movie in 2017. Though obviously his stuff has a really good shelf life. Yeah, I, I'm still not quite sure how they decided to do a film of Dark Tower. It's so complicated, but I'll admit it. I went and saw it. Who knows the story of how this became a movie? I mean, what were the hurdles involved? Because obviously this is a pretty quick turnaround from a 1982 uh, novella to a 1986 uh, release. Embassy International was the production company. It was sold to Columbia Pictures and Columbia didn't want to make the movie, Mm. which is, you know, begin sad trombone sound but there is a person who was really involved with the to be director and that was norman lear of all in the family and he believed so much in the project that he put up 7.5 million of an eight million dollar budget himself to make it and here's the nice twist is that um, meathead aka rob reiner went on to be the director of the of Stand By Me. And his trip to the director's chair was by virtue of the fact that Adrian Lyne, I hope I'm saying that right, who was the director of Flashdance and Nine and a Half Weeks, decided he needed a six-month vacation after Nine and a Half Weeks, fill in whatever innuendo you want to fill in there, and that would have pushed production out <laughs> very far. So um, they then gave the director job to Rob Reiner and he ended up calling his production company, Castle Rock Entertainment. And that is in honor of the fictional main town. That's the setting for many, many Stephen King pieces. I wanted to say, is this his first movie that he directed? But then I realized the spinal tap is earlier than that for sure. Yeah. Now we've all read the book by now, right? I just finished it like an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're coming back to that because I want to talk some more about the book. The, the book and the movie differ at times. What do you think are the significant differences between the book and the movie? The significant difference to me is at the end when they've reached the destination and they've found the body, which kid is holding the gun to face off the bullies? That is completely a different flip from the book to the movie. And I understand that King actually was like said to Rob Reiner, 
that's the way my story should have went. Yes, it should have. It should have been the way you filmed it. Huh. Interesting. Yep. I just have to say, I was blown away by the writing. I have not read a lot of Stephen King. I've read the Dark Tower series, which I really, really like. But this is just so well written. And, I, you know, duh, this guy's, this guy's sold a bajillion books. It shouldn't surprise me. I don't think I was necessarily surprised that it was Stephen King. But I was, I just really enjoyed reading it. Like you experienced, God, this sounds so pretentious. You just experience it so much differently, even though we've all seen the movie and we have that kind of visual framework to hang things on. It's just different to read it. He is such a fabulous storyteller. Uh, And I think people don't give him enough credit for the stories that he's telling. They focus sometimes too much on the imagery instead of the story, if that makes sense. Yeah, Um, very much so. But he just tells wonderful stories. And that was back to when he still had editors, probably, which helped as he as he got more famous. You can tell, as I can tell by my bookshelf, that he definitely got bloated on some of them where it was like, really, really? I don't know. Stop. Uh, But this one, you know, it's tight writing. It's evocative. It's just a really nice piece. You really get a sense of where these kids are at in their life in every way, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically out on the train tracks when they're screaming. Mm-hmm. It really puts everything together. Yeah. I like the use of word evocative because that is exactly what I would say. It is, it, you know, it's just so descriptive in a way that you connect with you know, not just what they're doing, but you, you can experience what they're feeling. And that's, I I think you get some of that in the movie. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about the casting and kind of where some of these kids were at in their lives and how that really kind of allowed them to connect with the source material. But, you know, from the perspective of a grown adult, you read these stories about these, you read the story about these kids and you know, you can see the path better than they can. And that's kind of, it, it's kind of interesting to see how much of it the kids are, are picking up on themselves, right? As they're starting to become aware of these things. Here's what I like about the book more than the movie. The book doesn't give away Chris's fate until the very end, which I think is much better. Correct. I think that the book does a better job of explaining scenes that don't really make a lot of sense to a casual watcher of the movie. The the deer scene that we've talked about, we'll, we'll talk about it again as an example. There are these moments where the right where King as as a grown-up Gordy talks about um, you know, the truth of writing or how writing how words can obscure the truth and and these these really deep revelations that he's taken away from this, but he, that he has finally understood from this experience, however many decades later. And I, right, I think, I think only having read the book, do I really truly appreciate the the movie? Yeah, what well, you said there just this is this occurred to me the the deer scene, twelve year old Gordy knew not to talk about it but 30 something year old gordy understands why he didn't talk about it yes yes he didn't know he didn't understand it he just knew not to do it yeah 
Speaking of Gordy, let's talk about the casting in the movie, uh, who stars and how they were cast. Um, why do you think Will Wheaton was so good in the role of Gordy Lachance? From what Wheaton has said in various interviews, and especially with the 35th anniversary, he said that Reiner really was able to sense the kind of pain that Wheaton had held within him. Um, he's talked pretty openly about his dysfunctional and abusive relationship with his parents. And um, he has said, well, Wheaton has said that, that those struggles helped him play a kid whose parents were emotionally walled off because the parents were dealing with the death of a big brother. Um, and he has said that even he, when he watches it, he can see the sadness in his eyes. And for me, knowing what he has said, and you go back and you watch the young, the young man that he was then, you can see there's a lot of pain in his, in his face when he's, especially, um, I think Steve, earlier, you pointed out in an email, one of the really difficult, I would say, scenes that he has with River Phoenix. What about Corey Feldman? I mean, I think almost every 80s fan who watches this movie immediately recognizes Corey Feldman playing uh, Teddy Duchamp. That was an interesting role. Yeah, I mean, Corey Feldman, what can you what what do we not know about him? Uh, that's that sounds dismissive, but I mean, here's a guy who has been abused by everyone up and down the Hollywood machine. He said at one he was at one interview he said I didn't have any problem getting into emotional places. My life was such turmoil and havoc. I didn't have the best home life. I didn't lead a normal life. I was aware of that from a very early age. Now Jerry O'Connell, is this the first time we ever see him? He plays Vern. And he's if if anything, he's the comic relief here. Yeah, Vern, the chubby goofball. Um, he just so embodies complete innocence in this movie. Um, he previously had just done commercials, I believe, and he I mean, he captures like Vern is so Vern when he says, "If I could only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy, Pez." Cherry flavored Pez. No question about it. It's like, who but a 12 year old goofball is going to say Pez is going to be your lifelong food. It was just yeah. perfect. He was so good at that. The, the, the thing I remember when I, every time I hear that line, I, I crave Pez afterwards. Like I just want some, some I don't Pez. think I've ever had Pez. What? <sighs> I don't think I've ever had Pez. We can try to find it at some bodega. Do you need me to leave? Is there like an Uber Eats that we can have Pez sent to your apartment, Brad? Please, please don't. I already ate. <laughs> and, and of course, we obviously have to talk about River Phoenix, who plays Chris Oh, Chambers. my gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Michelle, if, if, if Will Wheaton is the eyes of this movie, River Phoenix is the soul of this movie. Michelle, didn't you say you interviewed River Phoenix at one point? Yes, for his last full film i'll say 1993 the thing called love he played an aspiring country singer songwriter and i was on a press junket that was back when i was a reporter and an editor and i went on junkets to do these things and we were sitting around a six top, six top. i mean the reason why i really wanted to go to this press junket was i would get to talk to peter bogdanovich i was mm. like to heck with the rest of you. I just want to talk with you. I'm like, you hung out with Orson Welles. But uh, being there to 
speak with River Phoenix. Obviously, he was the the main star, even though they were trying to pitch Samantha Mathis as the main star. But you could tell even then, and that was like early 93, that something wasn't right. He came to the table flanked by bodyguards, looked really disheveled, put a came came in, sat down, put his tape recorder on the table and said he had to record it because you can't trust the press. Press always lies. And we're all like, okay, this is going to be fun. Huh. Um, but the recorder <laughs> didn't work because batteries were dead. And I was ever so helpful because that's what Michelle does. I jump up with a handful of AAA batteries because this is one of those little tiny, remember those okay. little, mm-hmm. tiny tape recorders? <clears throat> little micro cassettes. Yeah. Micro cassettes. And I pop up with some AAAs and to hand it to him and the bodyguards just box me out. And I thought, <laughs> Oh, this is pleasant. And he was Big very old nice. mean Michelle. Yeah. I was like, basically like dropped them into his hand and scurried back to my, to my chair. So the rest of the real reporters could start asking the questions, but you could even tell then something wasn't quite, hmm. it wasn't quite connecting, but he too, he had a really bad childhood too. His parents were members of, an extreme religious cult. I'll say extreme because I don't know what else to call it. Yeah. They were itinerant. They were destitute. Um, he had abuse in his childhood too. So he was wounded too. Uh, so I think really O'Connell was the only one who wasn't really damaged at 12, which is very sad. Very sad that three quarters of your, of your cast is wounded. Yeah, it works though. This um, is the happy part. This is the happy part where Michelle brings in all this fun stuff, right? <laughs> this is a happy podcast. This is the Woo-hoo. happy podcast. Well, well, let's pivot then to what <clears throat> what scenes matter most in Stand by Me. Uh, we made a mention of the deer scene, and I know Brad and I talked about the deer scene in episode six hundred six, and I I was having a trouble. I was having trouble understanding it, and I I think I even posted something online about that like or it was in the show where i said if you can explain the deer scene please email me and michelle was i think the first person who wrote me and, and explained I everyone think for the record i believe michelle agreed with my interpretation yes for the record yes i did brad and the exp- and the <laughs> I, just, expl- I just like being right once in a while and, and what and, and just to remind people who who didn't read my personal email what was the explanation I really think, Steve, that the best way to get an interpretation on the deer scene is to look into the book. And after we talked about it on the podcast, Michelle sent me a snippet of it. And it kind of bounced around in my head for a, a week or so. Um, it was uh, the, the sentence that really stuck with me was, it's hard to make strangers care about the good things in your life. And I think that's what's happened here is he's had this this moment with the with this animal, this with nature, with the world, whatever you want to call it, with this you know the, in the presence of another being, and had this this moment that how do you describe that to somebody? How how do you describe it in a way that that captures all of that wonder and that moment in a way that anybody can appreciate it? You have you know some things you really do have to be there for it. What about the pie eating contest? How how important is that to the to the movie? I don't think necessarily the contest itself is important. It's the fact that that's that it came from Gordy's imagination. That he's sitting around the campfire with the boys 
And he comes up with this outlandish tale about a pie-eating contest and a very large young man and a bottle of castor oil. And he makes it just as gross as like 12-year-old boys would really mm-hmm. think was really funny. And I think that's actually one of the, the pivotal scenes is Gordy gets done with a story and it just kind of like floats. It's a nice, it's just a floating ending. There's nothing. And Chris gets it. But Fern and Teddy look at each other and like, that's it. That's all there is. And they want like a big firecracker. You know, they want some big ending. Like Teddy wants to charge the ramparts or something like that. And he, Gordy makes something up to kind of like tie it up in a bow for them because they obviously need it tied up in a bow, but Chris didn't. And that's what gives you a hint that the boys are going to splinter at some point where you have kind of the smarter guys who kind of get that subtlety in life and Mm -hmm. the ones who don't. Brad, I know you always have always traditionally obsessed over the ending where the writer seemingly turns off the computer, thus losing the story that he wrote. And we talked about this a lot in episode 606. And the theory that I gave, which I didn't plan on giving was that. So maybe he did lose the story. That's, that's fine. It was the act of writing it that made him feel better. I really like that. I really like that interpretation, honestly. <laughs> Let me say that the, now I'm obsessing about a new part of the movie, though, mainly because I had zero recollection of it, that the movie opens with adult Gordy sitting in a Land Rover just staring out across the countryside. And I had no recollection of that at all. And it just it felt, again, it just felt so real to me. Like, you know, if your childhood friend had passed away, you would want to go and be someplace where you had been with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, the the scene that stuck with me this last time watching it was late in the movie where Gordy's starting to break down and really just become uh, morbid over his brother's death. Why do you have to die, Chris? Why did Denny have to I don't know. It should have been me. Don't say that. It should have been me. Don't say that, man. I'm no good. My dad said it. I'm no good. He doesn't know you. He hates me. He doesn't hate you. He hates me. No. He just doesn't know you. He hates me. My dad hates me. He hates me. He doesn't hate you. He just doesn't know you. And I, and I, I, I remember just welling up and being like, I, I don't think I've ever been so felt so morose over, over something, which is that's, it felt so true. And Chris nailed it. He, yeah. There's a heavy sadness in that. Yeah. yeah. How to, to, to feel like your father didn't know you. I mean, just God, bleh. 
For the record, folks, we like this movie. <laughs> we really do. Well, I like, but it, I love movies that make me feel sad for some reason. I don't know why. What makes Spearsy cry? Oh, I miss that know. Seggy. I miss that one too. Yeah. If if you look that the difference between the book and the movie, as far as Gordy's relationship with his big brother is in the book, there's a decade age difference. So his brother was 10 years older than, than his brother was 22 when he died. And then, you know, Gordy's 12 in the movie, they compress that age a little bit. And I think that's because, you know, John Cusack, probably wanted maybe to play a little bit younger than that. So Cusack looks a little bit um, closer in age to yeah. Gordy than the book represents. I'll say this too, about that relationship in the book. It's not as warm of a relationship. Correct. Uh, there's, there's, there's more of a coldness and a disconnect between them in the movie. Completely the opposite. They're the two people in that family who get each other. <laughs> yeah. Dennis. When you're out there tomorrow. Pop, did you read the story that Gordy wrote? Gordy wrote a story. It was really good. What did you write, sweetheart? I see. That's what I'm talking about. Football takes concentration. You start in on the girls and his mind's all over the place. Darcy, I don't know how many I really liked it. That was great. In 2016, several writers wrote about the movie for its 30th uh, anniversary. Rolling Stone called Stand By Me, quote, timeless a staple of youthful nostalgia for its deft straddling of the line between childhood and adulthood and calling it that rare movie that necessarily gets better with time. I don't think I could agree more with something. You know what I could agree more with? Thank you. What's happening, hot stuff? Uh, By the sound of the gong, it must be time for mystery movie moment. We will play a snippet of a movie from the 80s. If you get it right, you're entered into the drawing for a... Say it, Michelle. Postal friendly bottle opener. Does it it feel good to say that? Mm, It does. Especially when I have one already. (sighs) Even better. (laughs) Okay. Cast your mind back to episode 609. Here was the mystery clip. Add up the number of times that you think about the lady each day. Subtract from the total the number of times that you think about yourself each day. If the remainder is more lady and less yourself, then it's love. Yeah, that's Peter O'Toole. Most people got that right. But the movie is Creator. And um, that was another movie from that year. 1985, I think, where... I watched it repeatedly at the video store I worked at because, you know, as we have mentioned many, many times, Back to the Future was forever, forever checked out. <laughs> so. Yeah, but you got to watch Virginia Madsen that way. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, Ooh. Winning. God, I had such a crush on her. Oh, my gosh. Get in line. <laughs> no doubt. Oh, my Lord. Um, that was actually filmed. A lot of those scenes were filmed on campus at UC Irvine, where I was a student at the time. Now, remind me, ant eaters or banana slugs? Anteaters, come on. Santa Cruz is the banana slug. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love that so much. Get the, it straight, mister. When I watched this movie, I was certain that the character that Peter O'Toole plays had all the answers to life. I mean, he has so many great lines in this movie. And and if 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 I had an English class the next day, I would have jotted them down and plagiarized them and used them. It, it to me, that was like the movie that had, was like the um the crib notes to life. Um, 
probably explains a lot. I'm sitting here X number of years later still talking about it. Uh, anyway, this movie is available to rent on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, YouTube, and Vudu. I have it on DVD. But um, in the meantime, Brad, why don't you read some winners? Winners this week include John Demacus in Rockin', California, Mark Basno Canali. Kennelly? How do we say that, Steve? Kennelly? Kennelly? Kennelly. Mark Basno Canelli, Lynn with three ends in Nebraska, Anfield Albert, Billy from Philly, Chip Commander Bourbon in Maryland, Tom Corn in Austria, David Parrott, and Chris Deepcut Sampson. Now I'm consumed with the urge to become um, Commander Bourbon. Or can I, can, I be, can I get a promotion? Can I be like Captain Bourbon? I think you should shoot for Major Bourbon. How about Colonel Bourbon? That actually sounds pretty good. Colonel Bourbon. So, I like Colonel yeah. Bourbon. That's better. Yeah. We're going to go with Colonel Bourbon. Sounds like something you'd get at 7-Eleven, though. <laughs> give, give me a handle of, Cabr- of Colonel Bourbon. The liquor store that's like, I'm, I'm in New York right now as we're, as we're recording this. The liquor store, there's a liquor store in her building like or on her block, I guess. Mm-hmm. And But it closes at some ridiculous, I think it closes like eight or nine most nights. I'm like, what, what kind of madness is that? Well, they hate money. So consequently, I drink less in New York, which I don't think is the right way of approaching this city. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, pay attention. Here's your mystery clip for this show. Hey, baby doll. What's for dinner? (laughs) If you know it, email us at podcast at sats.com. And tune in soon to find out if you're a winner. Ah, uh, the mystical refrain that is named that 80s tune. Uh, you know the drill. We'll play a snippet of a song from the 80s, sometimes the late 70s, if I'm really not paying attention. And uh, if you get it right, again, glory could be yours in the form of a, Michelle, one more time. Postal friendly bottle opener. It just sounds. Oh, oh save that as a clip because we could just <laughs> use that every show. Yeah. I don't that was so to, choice. I don't ever want to say it again. <laughs> okay, pay attention from episode 609. Here was your mystery tune. That Save Me by Queen. Had a lot of people write in on this one, but um, everyone kind of remembers. Some people remember that we did a whole episode on Queen's The Game album when it hit its 30th anniversary. And we went into a long explanation of how Save Me was like the Spearsonian love ballad of modern podcast history. <laughs> <laughs> Low How the Mighty Have Fallen. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I, I was a huge, I had that album. I swear I'd never heard that song until we had done that podcast. That's weird. And anyway, I have to go back and listen to that episode tomorrow on my sweaty walk to work. It's a good one. It's, it's a really good one. It's um, we, we really clicked on that one. Anyway, uh, Brad, it seems like we had some winners. Why don't you give them a shout out? We did not as many as I would have thought. Maybe people are still at the beach. Nevertheless, our winners this week include Donnie Kettle, Rhymes with Mercury, Bass Note, T. 
Terry Kemp, Joseph Perdue, Ricky from Nashville, Kevin, you can dodge a wench, Todd in Minnesota, Brian in the Redneck Rapids, North Carolina, Stoney Stitt, Mark Hadley, Cincinnati Joe, Phil from Adelaide, and Shan Nichols, who writes, That mystery song would be Save Me by Queen. I have to say I'm a bit surprised that Brad hadn't heard Shake You Down ever before prepping for the show. I knew it right off the first couple of notes for one reason only, the Venn diagram of songs that are about sex and use the rhymes Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo" and Roses Are Red, Violets Are Blue contains this one single song. <laughs> and now you know why Shan and I are friends. Yes. <laughs> okay, time to spin the wheel. Michelle, will you do the honors? <laughs> Oh my gosh, did you flip the desk over? <laughs> uh, looks like it's going to land on uh, Terry Kemp. You're this week's winner. So email us your postal address and uh, we can send you the postal friendly bottle opener. It just wouldn't be a show if I didn't get to say it once. That's true. Uh, in the meantime, uh, here's this week's mystery clip. If you know it, Email us at podcast at com. Oh, that hurt. I didn't feel good at all. Mm. Uh, where's my we game? need some more of that Colonel Bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> and tune in next week to find out if you're a winner. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Stop that bite. You're having a chicken sandwich in a burger place? Is it a real breast filet that's all white meat? Then try this. Kentucky Fried Chicken's Breast Filet Sandwich. It's got a What do you think? Now that's a chicken sandwich. Only a Kentucky Fried Chicken. God, my dog is snoring. And we're back. We have just a few minutes left. I thought, hey, let's talk about the legacy of Stand By Me. One of the more interesting things I learned when researching this is that Brownsville, Oregon, uh, which is where it was filmed, uh, now has an annual Stand By Me day. Hmm. And I guess for the 25th anniversary, they had a big event and a lot of the cast and the crew came back. They did a Q&A. There was a pie eating contest. I think they all dove into a lake full of uh, leeches as well for fun. As one does. And um, to encourage tourism, Brownsville embedded a penny in the street at the location where Vern found one at the end of the film. Nice. I didn't realize this is quite close to where my daughter is in school. So I'll have to swing by next time yeah. I'm up that way. Yeah. Take a photo of the penny. Bring us back a leech. Maybe I'll take the penny. I have a pocket knife. Am I the only one like when you read the when you read the leech scene in the book, it's it's a little bit more graphic. Oh yeah. A bit, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't talks- show that. You can't show that stuff. Come on. <laughs> and and looking at the internet for the various leech descriptions. It's very split on whether they were real or they were fake. The fake, oh, they were latex, no problem. The real, that pond had been made at least a month or so prior to them filming those scenes. So that pond was full of all sorts of nasty nature stuff that wasn't there previously. Um, But whatever they did, the makeup artist did a fantastic job because throughout those following scenes, you can still see like the the marks on the, the marks. boys' chests, and mm-hmm. they're and which is what really creeps me out. I think more than the leeches is the fact that you can still see it. 
I just remember well, how red the blood was in his fingers. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the like, book, yeah. In the book, That's, he talks about squeezing the leech that was on his balls to the point where it explodes in his hand and just so all the blood that was previously, you know, in said testicle is now <laughs> dripping out of his hands. And when and we I was deep re- that because it's a medical term, folks, <laughs> it's, it was. And then and then if that's not like food enough for thought, I don't, it's just, it should not be considered food at all, by the way, folks. <laughs> he describes he, he describes in the book how it left a permanent scar, like a little crescent shaped scar on his. Um, what billiard. is he going down there with a the mirror? Come on. <laughs> No, but his wife is. His, oh, wife, well. his wife sees it and he has to come and he lies on the spot about what it was. Of course, we don't know what the lie was. You know, if I ever get a chance to, to uh, I got Stephen caught in the waffle iron. <laughs> <laughs> I explained so much about you, not the movie, Brad. I'm uh, just saying it could happen to anybody. What do you think this movie will be best remembered for? Despite there being so many other like kid actor films in the 80s. I really feel like this one captured a hell of a lot of talent all in one place that wasn't going to be captured. That lightning wasn't going to be captured in another kind of bottle again. Um, And it's just such a great coming of age story. It, it just makes you kind of winsome for, I wish I had a childhood like that. The, The actual literal meaning of nostalgia, which is the pain of remembering. Right. Mm-hmm. Brad, how well do you think it stands the test of time? I think it stands the test of time remarkably well. I, I want to double down on what Michelle said and, and say, I can't think of another movie with so many debuts that is just so well acted top to bottom. And I don't know how much, you know, like anything in life, how much of that is luck, how much of that is working with Rob Reiner, who you know, was clearly sympathetic to these kids in some ways. I I don't know exactly what, you know, what's the secret sauce in that that made it so good. How does it stand the test of time? I think it stands the test of time amazingly well. Uh, to me, it is a movie that came out in the 80s, but it is by no means dated to the 80s. So I don't think anyone can really look you straight in the eye and say, oh, that's just an 80s flick, whatever. Uh, and I, I think that, again, I've kind of talked about this the whole show. These are experiences and situations that it's very easy, at least for me as a kid who grew up as a boy, I, I can empathize and sympathize with these characters. And if you can connect with the characters that way now, when I'm, you know, it's been, you know, 41 years since I was 13 years old. uh, That's the very definition of standing the test of time. Where do you think it ranks among Stephen King movies, Michelle? Oh, top three easily. Um, He has said that it is one of his favorite movies that was ever adapted. Um, And Reiner has said that Rob Reiner has said the same thing, that it's one of his favorite films that he's done. There's such a universality to it. Um, You know, when we look back at like Reiner's other works, you say Princess Bride or Spinal Tap, and you look at King with It or The Stand or something like that. You know, not everyone can be a Princess Buttercup or a Nigel Tufnell. And thankfully, not every villain is Pennywise or life would be really bad. Um, But everyone's been a kid and everyone has seen a bully do his best to tear you down. And everyone's had those friends. I mean, whether it's 12 
or 19 or 30 or 47 or 50 blank, um, you have those, you, those friendships can last. And to Brad's point about kind of the timelessness, once they leave the treehouse and go on the trek to see the body, there's nothing that really tells you what era they're in, except for the Paladin theme song. Many people might not know this, but the movie doesn't end the way the book ends. The, the line that we love so much about the friends we have when we're 12 years old, that, that happens in the middle of the book. At the end of the book, we, fi- we find out that the, these kids get the living shit kicked out of them by the bullies <laughs> in the days that were to follow. I mean, to the point that I think they all end up at the hospital at one point. And it, and it ends with Gordy being in town and seeing his his the villainous Ace Merrill again, um, you know, as a grown up, but it doesn't end with that wonderful, wonderful line. Instead, what we get is this paragraph. I looked to the left and beyond the mill, I could see the castle river, not so wide, but a little cleaner, still flowing under the bridge between castle rock and Harlow. The trestle upstream is gone, but the river is still around. So am I. I hope you have a chance to go back and revisit this movie um, and a chance to read the book Um, as everyone has said. And and now I, and now all of us agree it's, it's a vital piece of the eighties. And so until we meet again, Michelle, Brad and I will remain there hopelessly stuck in the eighties. Give me some skin. I'll see you. If I see you first When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuckinthe80spodcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music. And thanks for listening. Oh.